Hey people, it is Richard Harris and Scott Lees from the Surf and Sales podcast. Uh, we are back again for another fantastic episode with a really, really, actually a good friend of mine, someone I've gotten to know over the years, uh, both personally and professionally, um, who's made some big changes all throughout his life, actually, but one very recently, which we'll talk about, um, that is James Buckley, who is now with John Barrows and the Jay Barrows group. I don't know, is he even going to call it a group or is it still Jay Barrows, Buckley? Uh, so I don't want to reveal anything at the corporate level that we shouldn't be revealing. So I'm going to no, leave you it. Just to did. You, you have a shitty poker face, my friend. Um, <laughs> so, all right, John, don't, don't blame James. So anyway, so James, you have a, I want to sort of really start with your origin story in sales because yours is very different than a lot of us. Right. Um, yeah. You know, like, you know, when you were growing up, did you have, you know, the, the kid sales jobs of lemonade stands? I sold candy, like, you know, or was it like, nope, this was never on my radar until such a time. So, yeah, no, it actually was. I knew that I was good at sales really young. So the story goes that when I was around eight or nine, I really wanted a ferret. I didn't know why, but I wanted a ferret really bad. And my parents were like, no way is this happening in my house. And I was like, all right, well, you know, I'm not asking you for the money. I'm asking, can I have one? And my dad said, I'll tell you what, you save the money to buy the ferret and all, all the things that you need. And I can't say no. And I was like, sold. So what I did was I got a red wagon and I filled it up full of car washing stuff. And I went door to door in my neighborhoods that were surrounding in Miami, Florida. And I just knocked on doors and said, I will wash your car for $10. And that right. was my $10. I'll wash your car. Even if I don't do a bang up job, it'll still look better than what it did before I got it, right? Was that your, wait a minute, was that your pitch? Hey, even if it sucks, yeah. it's still going to yeah. be better than what it Absolutely. was? Absolutely. Underselling right from the start. Absolutely. So, so, so I would just walk around and look for filthy cars in the neighborhoods and then go knock on the door and be like, I see your car is dirty. And I had the wagon with me. So they would look back and see the wagon and they'd be like, ah. Uh, you know, and some people would just jump right in like, oh, yeah, what do you need a hose? Do it, you know. Yeah. So I did this for a couple of months, I guess. And it took me, you know, two, three months to come up with like $230, $300. And I knew that I needed 100 for the ferret. And then I needed however much I needed for the cage and the, the food and everything else. So I come back a couple months later to my dad and I slam that money down on our dinner table. And I go, let's do it. When are we going to go get the ferret? And you could see in his face, he was like, shit. <laughs> now I have to make good on this. I did, he know, did he know, he knew you were doing the car wash thing though? Like your parents knew? Of course, yeah. I would right. come home and I would park the wagon there, you know, but he never asked me like, how's it going and how much have you made? Like he never asked me any of that. I think he thought, you know, it was probably just going to take a long time and I would eventually burn out, but it didn't take me that long. So right. He probably didn't remind you because he didn't want to buy a damn ferret. Right. <laughs> <laughs> So uh, well, so I had the money. We bought the ferret. It worked out great. And then I ended up uh, giving the ferret to some friends when I moved away. What did uh, you name the ferret? Sarah. It was a Sarah girl. the ferret? Right. Yeah. Yeah. I wasn't and, real sure why I landed on that. Cool. <laughs> and were, your, were your parents in business or sales or were they in a different world? Like what did they do? So my dad worked for a company called Crossmark. Basically what they would do is get up at 2, 3 in the morning, drive to a Publix that was in South Miami, rip all the food out of the Publix, set it up outside in a tent, rip out all of the new shelving, put the new shelving in, and then they had planograms. I don't know if you're familiar with grocery retail, but they would reset all the food, take out all the, the, the spoiled stuff or the out-of-date stuff, 
uh, take out all the old labels and then reorganize it all, put it back in before they opened at 9 a.m. So you can imagine uh, what that looked like. I worked for him for a little while when I became of working age and I did right, the same right. thing for a little bit. So a real sort of salt of the earth kind of a background as opposed to the what many of us run into sort of traditionally. Well, he also worked directly for Publix for most of my life. So he would leave that job at 9 a.m., come home, sleep for about two, three hours, and then get up and go work a, an afternoon job at Publix until close. And then he would come home. It was pretty rare that we would spend any kind of like, you know, decent time with him unless he actually like set that time aside to not work and spend time with us. So, Got it. And then your my, mom? Mom, my mom worked at the University of Miami. She worked for the... Um, for the provost's office and she was there for about 20 years uh she was basically where the buck stopped before the provost and the president got wind of something happening got it got it got it so well, how about you so you, you go to college not go to college so i actually went back to college as a non-traditional student uh i graduated i i i was politely asked to leave several high schools <laughs> and, uh and then I, I was told basically like i don't even know why you come here and i was like are you saying i could leave and the principal was like please and i was like i'm out right so i left about two years later i was working like salt of the earth jobs as you mentioned with no di no diploma or anything and I, you know just wherever i could take work i was taking work doing things that were a little bit unsavory in Miami, Florida, if I could just touch on that and then move on. Uh, but in the end, what happened was I got a GED and I started working in kitchens. And then I spent the next 15 years just working in kitchens, learning the prep side, learning how to run the line, grill, fry, flat top, salamander, saute, sauceteering, like whatever you got in the kitchen, let's make it happen. I know how to do it probably. Salamander? Yeah, yeah. Salamander in the kitchen? So when you when you order when you order like Texas cheese fries and they come out with that skillet and it's all hot and the the cheese is melted the machine they put it in to do that is called a salamander. Gotcha. I literally thought he was cooking salamander, Richard. Yeah, I know you did. That's all right. <laughs> I don't. I can't relate to you two country guys yet. So so you're in my and this is all in Miami. You're doing all this cooking and stuff in Miami, right? Yeah. Um, and then how, how what you know what what led you to sales? What how did you? So I moved to East Tennessee from Miami in 2006 and in and out of the kitchens, I took sales roles because, you know, you want to start a new life. You don't want to go back to the same jobs, but when you know something, you know something. So it was really easy for me to walk into any kitchen in East Tennessee and be like, Hey, can I flip eggs for you or flip burgers? You know, like, yeah, absolutely. So you get the job and then you get tired of it. So you go, I'm going to step away from this. Hey, I quit this job. I'm going to go do sales for a while. So I ended up with some sales jobs that were mostly commission. They were not very high in base pay. It was all performance based. What kind, uh, of, what kind of jobs were those? So I worked for Winstead Marketing out of Knoxville, and that was door-to-door, B2B. So we were essentially walking into businesses and selling them AT&T phone lines uh, for their credit card machines. If they had like an additional line that they needed in the back office, we would you know, try to get them to understand no, you need a new line to run that. You would want to definitely have multiple lines. You don't want to have to hang up to use your credit card machine, all that stuff. Yeah. Uh, and, then, and then internet, obviously, in 2006 was, you know, just starting to like, wow, really be business oriented. So people were bringing in laptops now and trying to set up desktops at their computer stations. You need lines for that. Everything was still, you know, how are you going to connect? You need another line. So it was really easy for me to walk in and just start, start conversations about that. Most people were interested. It was an easy sale. Got it. Got it. So, um, 
so then, so then you sort of decided, okay, I'm going to go down this path. Yeah. Right. And you sort of moved in from these different sort of sales jobs into what many of us know, particularly the ones who, who were connected with, you know, the traditional inside sales job, that kind of thing. Right. Um, where was that? Where was that first step for you? Yeah. So I did organ pest control door to door residential right out of college. Uh, I, I left Taco Bell. I was managing a Taco Bell at the time. Um, just kind of like in between, like, what am I going to do now that I have a degree? I came to Tennessee, went to college. It was, there's a whole story behind that as a non-traditional student, but I left Taco Bell to go to Cirrus Insight, which was a Salesforce and inbox integration tool. At the time I had lots of sales experience, I had no idea about the tech side of sales. So I was never in SaaS before. I didn't know what Salesforce was. Fortunately for me, the business development director at the time was Zach Metters, who was very versed in Salesforce and was working for Cirrus Insights since the beginning. Best like sales coach I ever had starting out in the SaaS world was Zach Metters because he was the type of guy that did not bullshit you. He would tell you, oh, let me Google that for you. And you felt really dumb. So you're like, how do I avoid going to that guy and just find the information myself was kind of the mentality that I developed as a result. But it turned out to be the best thing. I stayed there for four years at Cirrus Insight, three years and nine months. And that's where I planted my feet down and learned about Salesforce and SaaS, all the research I did on all these companies I was trying to sell to. I kept saying shit like, man, that's a cool company. I'd love to work there someday. You know, and I would, always, I would always just keep in touch with everybody. And that became my Say What Sales brand. It's just, you know, being out there and creating content and telling people you're, what works for me. And I did that. You're, at you're relatively new to the, the tech sales industry then. What is that, about five, five plus years total? Five years. Yeah, five yeah. years. That's, that's it. Yeah. And you, you, built, you built the brand for yourself, Say What Sales, all around sort of um, speaking the truth and speaking your mind and, and talking about different things. Um, I know you're passionate about this. Why do you think people are so scared to, to speak the truth? And, and do you see that changing anytime soon? I do. So at, at Jay Barrows, actually, they talk about this. The death of the average salesperson is what we're probably going to witness here very soon. Um, I think people are afraid to talk about the truth about sales because it used to be something different than what it is today. It's changed in a lot of ways. And here's what I mean. In the days of just call, cold calling, when people had like call centers with 500 people on the sales floor, everybody in their own little cube with noise canceling headphones and we're all heads down talking to individuals, that used to be the norm. And it was okay in those days to just make a sale. Hey, I made a sale. You'd stand up and everybody go, yeah, all right, made a sale. You'd never talk to that person again. This industry is not that. It's morphed into something way more. So now we have to make that sale and then our team has to support us as we carry that relationship on. How do we get the most value to this customer now that they've bought our product so that when the time comes for them to decide, should I keep using this product? The answer is going to be absolutely. Those guys are great. They provide value. We can point to a return on investment. That's the sales world that we live in today that used to not be. We could make a sale and be like, I hope they make it and then never talk to them again. It'd be fine. <laughs> you, you feel like people are, are, are scared to, to speak that truth right now. I, I, I agree with you that that's the world that, that we live in right now, but you're sort of talking more about speaking the truth during the sales process. And I don't, I don't know that people are afraid 
um, to talk so much about that. I, I always assumed that, you know, your, your take was kind of, you know, people are afraid to speak the truth about what sales is like, what sales people go through, how hard it is, some of the ways you're going to get, you know, hosed by the companies or prospects or colleagues yeah. or whatever. Am I, on the wrong, am I on the wrong train of thought? <laughs> no, not at all. I mean, I think it all plays well together. People are afraid to tell others what it's really like. And we're all very good at putting filters on our social media presences, especially, and saying everything is awesome. I know a lot of great people out there that put incredible content out there, but their pipelines are dry, right? And that's because we're really good at presenting that things are fantastic when they're not. But also, people are afraid to be exposed as a fraud. They don't want to have to go out there and say what it's really like because then they're admitting that the content they put out is not what's real. It's not realistic. That's a big, deep-rooted fear that I see a lot of sales reps struggling with. Yeah. Hey, I want to create content. I want to build a brand. I want to attract people to me. But it's all for the sake of what? Filling my pocket? No one wants to be exposed as that salesperson, even if they're not. So then shouldn't somebody potentially take a lot more care and concern for their role and their career? And that's why, that's and why we're seeing the death of the average salesperson. Yeah. And be patient to build a brand and to build a following? Absolutely. It takes a lot of time. It takes consistency. It's not going to happen overnight. I say this stuff all the time. And, I, and I, I'm 100% on board with you. They should care. And that is why we're seeing the death of the average salesperson, not the exceptional salesperson. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. Um, there's a balance in there, too, because I do this a lot. I, I've talked to Scott that, wow, you know, and I think we all know those vulnerability cells, right? Showing that you're fallible, showing that you make mistakes. Um, but even I, and I post a lot about this stuff, I'm also very conscious that, like, I'm not always seen as that negative guy or I'm not always like, cause it's easy to write negative shit, right? Like in today's world, everybody, you know, that's what people like to watch. So it's interesting cause I am conscious of, okay, I need, I need to put something else positive out there or how do I take this and make it a positive spin? Right. Um, you know, I just did something yesterday about, you know, everybody requesting SAS experience or, you know, industry years experience, which is just ridiculous, right? It's stupid. Take it off the job description. Yeah. Uh, Cause if you can't teach somebody what SAS is in about five minutes, like you got a big problem. Like that's, <laughs> that's way, that's, that's a hard, you know, like, please convince me otherwise. And, uh, but I'm also constant, constantly kind of going, okay, so here's how you do it. So if I bring up the negative, I then try to bring up the positive in some ways too. So I really, I really appreciate you sort of exposing that. Um, that's, that's really good. Let's talk about, um, sales and marketing, right. Um, you know, getting along, not getting along, um, falling under one umbrella eventually, in your opinion, you know, what do you see? Um, you know, tell us what John's doing. Cause you know, I know that he wants you to expose everything and all the top secrets. So, um, you know. <laughs> so what, what, I, I, think, I think sales and marketing alignment is that elusive thing that a lot of businesses have been after for decades, but really struggle. They find it occasionally, but then it's quickly. Why do they struggle? Where's the struggle? The struggle is because where is the information slash the leads coming from? I think the lead generation is the contention point. That's the point that causes the conflict between sales and marketing. And here's why. Marketing is responsible for getting engagement. That engagement at some point or another, depending on the threshold, 
converts to interest. That becomes an MQL, marketing qualified lead, whatever that matters, however that looks to you. Here's the question. If you're already interested, and I know that as a marketer, why would I pass that to a salesperson when I could easily just count that in my quota, whatever that looks like? Because marketing has a quota too. That's something salespeople don't always know. They're supposed to generate X amount of MQLs every month. Yeah, but is that enough? Because I, I don't think, you know, MQLs are fucking easy, right? You know, that's no, that's no different than you getting, that, that's no different than you and I posting something and calling everybody who likes our post an MQL because they engaged us, right? That shows engagement. I think, I think, some, I think some of the distrust now is that potentially account executives can generate more engagement than the marketing teams can generate. Welcome to the tension, right? Marketing teams are beginning to look at sales reps that are content creators as competition. That, yeah. that is a huge source of tension between these two teams because they're compensated for the same reason. Get the interest, close the deal. Now you can well, the, the, the marketing team is, is, is compensated right now for getting the interest. The, the sales team is compensated for closing the business. Right. Even though now the sales team is more and more getting the interest and closing the business. Marketing has two. So, so I don't, I don't want to attack marketing. Let's make that clear. Oh, let's fucking attack marketing. I don't have a problem with it. <laughs> there, any, there by the way, any marketing people who want to come and join us on the Surf and Sales podcast, contact Scott and I. We will gladly hear your side without beating you up. We'll give you your platform. We'll give you your shot. Yeah. No, it's true. I, and I think they should, right? Like marketing people, you should be on this podcast because that's the struggle. How do we work well with sales? Sales leaders, you should be on this podcast because it's like, how do I work with marketing, right? Like if you're not struggling, if you're not after marketing and sales alignment, your, your business will just continue to struggle. Because so what do, you, what do you see businesses doing to create this alignment, right? Like this existed, it's getting, you know, one of it's ego, right? Let's face it, right? It's control and ego. The other is compensation, right? I totally agree with you that compensation is um, unintentionally misaligned, right? Like it's, it's not that anybody's trying to force a problem. No. Um, but so where do we go? How do we, how do we start to solve it? What do you see out there? Well, I think, I think, I think, I think the birth of the CRO role in the last few years is, is one, one early attempt by the yes. industry. I, I would argue that's true. RevOps is an up and coming position that I think is going to be seen much more in 2020 moving forward. And that's, uh, RevOps is the like CRO version of ops. Yeah. I mean, look, I think there's a lot of ways you could slice that pie. If you're, if you've got a CRM that's really in depth and you need somebody that's an expert there and they're a sales ops person, and then you have somebody else that's over CR uh, over AEs and SDRs and, and CSMs that that's a, that's a CRO, right? There's a lot to be said for that. The, the biggest problem that I see in marketing and sales alignment is that we don't talk to each other. We, we, there's no communication. So I talk about this often. We have 700 ways of talking to each other. Hangouts, Slack, email, phone call, text me, social media, direct messages. And we still manage to surprise each other departmentally twice a day. How is this happening? Right? It's happening because no one's on the same page. Marketing's doing things and they're pissed off because sales doesn't appreciate what they do. Sales is doing things and they're not communicating with marketing about what their end users, what their prospects are saying. So marketing can't make the adjustments needed. Communication will solve 90% of these issues. But once there's tension, both of those department heads move in different directions and that alignment is forever lost. 
And, and so, and so why does the VP of sales head get chopped first? Well, because that's often the frontline manager. That's the person that's held accountable for the sales results. You believe, the, that, you believe that that should be the case? I, I mean, I, I think that it's unfair. I'm not going to say it's fair, but life's not fair. If you took the role knowing you were held accountable, why is that VP of sales not making but steps? Why isn't, but why isn't the same pressure put on the marketing person? Well, maybe it is. And if it's not, why is that VP of sales not making that argument? Why is the table not coming together as a whole and saying, okay. I think, I think, I think more VPs of sales are starting to make the argument. I think historically, historically people haven't tried to make the argument because they get looked at as, as somebody who's trying to shuck responsibility and, and, and they don't want to be seen that way. It's not about skirting responsibility. No. It, it, it's just about, there, there's two different standards here. I think ego, it was said earlier, ego plays a huge role in this. When you, when, if, I, if I'm a VP of sales, now keep in mind, I've never been a VP of sales. So for those of you that are VPs of sales out there, don't skewer me for saying this. But like, if it's me and I'm getting the, I'm the person that's getting the come down, I'm going to my team and I'm trying to collaborate to find a solution. You don't have to own that onus on your own. But oftentimes your ego is such that you choose to own that onus because you'd rather be the person responsible for the success when and if it happens. You're better off to celebrate that success as a team. That's just my opinion. So I'm actually Googling this, right, per, per your old boss's recommendation, right? And according to Indeed, the average tenure of a VP of sales and marketing is three to five years. So if you get that marketing title in there, you get yourself an extra year and a half on your you tenure. Double, you double your tenure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. The typical, again, from Indeed, the typical tenure for a VP of marketing is two to four years. Right. Yeah. So, you know, we're down to 18 months, 17 months. And I think it's even getting smaller, if I'm not mistaken. Um, yeah. But as people move forward with different roles, what happens is they grow out of those roles. So this could, there's a lot of variables, I think, that play into this. Not every, not every person is going to stay at one company indefinitely. There's a few people out there that have been with the same company for 10, 20 years, but most people are after the shiny quarter. So once they've mastered something at a company, they're like, all right, this is great, but I think I'm ready to try something new. I don't think a lot of that has to do with the experience or the marketing and sales alignment or the pushback or the tension. I think it has to do with us personally. If, I, if it's me and I've been somewhere for five years, I'm thinking, what's next? Let's do whatever that is. Yeah, but there's a big right? difference between five years and 15 months, James. Like I, yeah. I, I've, been, I've been a VP of sales God knows how many times now. And, right. and I can tell you, uh, just from talking to so many contemporaries of mine in the field who are in the role, like you've got like two cycles, maybe, two sales cycles, maybe, to make stuff happen. And it doesn't matter if your product is 75% of what you were promised when you got hired, right? So is that your fault? I suppose if you want to be really accountable, yeah, I fucked up. Like I should have vetted the product better, but like I didn't maybe, right? So I got a 75% solid product, okay? I got a marketing team that is supposed to be hitting, you know, certain targets for SQLs, MQLs, inbounds, whatever you want to call it and they're hitting 50% of their goal. And yeah, they get some pressure, but there's certainly no talk about, you know, churning that person out. And I've got an onboarding customer success and customer service team that has no standard, no set process whatsoever. But 
I'm, I'm, I'm in here. I'm supposed to sell against all odds because, hey, I'm a miracle worker. I'm supposed to turn water into wine no matter what, right? Yep. And I've got two six-month sales cycles to make some shit happen or it's a wrap, I'm out, yep. right? Now, I've been fortunate enough to avoid that situation. I, I, everywhere I go, I, I'm there two and a half, three years. I, I, I know what to do to get myself to a particular place and then, I, and then I'm out. But I can't even tell you how many people who get their VP of sales shot for the first time or even the second time who are out after eight months, nine months, barely a year and so forth. And it's those people that I'm, you know, I feel protective of, right? It's those people that I try to speak out and give, and give voice to. I'm more interested in talking to those folks and coaching up those folks than I am at this point in my career than talking to SDRs and teaching them, hey, here's the best subject line, right? So that, that's, that's the place where I come from and why I get so fired up about it. You know, I, 18 months is that magic number. And they say that sales roles typically end up in that 18 month window. I, if it's me, I think I would leave based on a culture. My feelings dictate that eight month, 18 month departure much more than my results. If, if I've been somewhere a year and nothing has changed and everything's exactly the same and I've sent weekly reports, made suggestions, asked for changes, and I haven't seen it, why would I stick around there? So it's like, Sometimes there's more to it than just, all right, where, you know, why do they leave? Well, there's probably a lot of reasons, but I think change and our ability to try to do something different is the reason why we leave. I, I, this is my opinion. I, 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 think you're, I think you're right if the, if the person is choosing to leave on their own. <clears throat> but I, but I, I think I'm talking about people who are not given that choice, <clears throat> right? And, and that's... And that's yeah. And that's a big difference. Let me yeah, let me change. I, I, agree. I, I don't think I don't think that's long enough to see a VP of sales truly succeed or fail. You've got to have a big enough data set and you gotta know that sales. If it's a six-month sales cycle, I would say I would give it at least two years before I really hammered down and said, Why haven't I seen results? Because you're changing people's behavior, you're changing a culture. You're changing the way they address their prospects. You're changing the conversation. You're even repositioning the product in some ways. If you know, you're a good VP of sales, other VPs of sales. Funny though, to anybody. <laughs> I, I know this, and I know we're going to change the subject. But what's even funnier is that oftentimes these VPs of sales are are growing at 10, 15, 20, 30 percent, but the CEO or the founder uh, is thinking it should be, you know, we should be like Bob, oh, Dropbox, and we should be you know, a hundred percent year over year growth, if not, right? If you're not growing north of a hundred percent year over year, you're shit. You're shit, right? <laughs> and that's, that's where, that's where this 18 month thing comes in, right? That's where, and sometimes <laughs> it's the VC, not always. Sometimes the VC puts a, a bird in their ear. Sometimes it's a young founder who um, is super tech savvy and they understand that they can sell the product easily because people are buying them, but they don't realize it. Um, and then they think after 18 months or 24 months that, oh, they know how to sell. You know, they, they brought in a good VP. They, they, you know, this VP has done really good, but I, I you know, we're, we're just a dime a dozen. VPs of sales, heads of sales are, are dimes a dozen, right? So, um, so those yeah. people, now I will, I will put this out there for all those who are interviewing and looking at VPs of sales roles, you know, you definitely should go and make a, an exit package if they decide to, you know, you know, if, if you're hitting goals, 
at a certain percentage level and they want to get rid of you, okay, well, they got to pay you to leave, right? Like I would at least put that umbrella policy in for yourself because that's what it's there for. So at least ask. I think in most cases, VPs of sales are just like any other person in the sense that once they get that bad taste and they decide in their mind that they're going to find else, they're going to find work elsewhere. I think they're just like us. They update their resume and they start reaching out and they start having conversations. And one of these days an offer comes along, I'm taking that offer and I'm out. James, you're going to get fired because you just used one of John's favorite words to never use, reaching out, right? <laughs> we don't reach out, touch base, check in, circle back. Check in, touch base. The mentality has even started creeping in when I'm like setting my tasks. I used to put follow up as the label. Yes. Now I'm like, oh, delete, delete, yes. delete. <laughs> Ask for this. Ask for that. That's what I do too. So let, let's, let's shift. We, we, I, know, I, know, I, know you're, I know you're brand new more or less in this, in this new role, but talk a little bit about the differences of selling services as opposed to a product, right? You guys are- Yo, that, that has been huge. That transition has been so tough for me uh, just to wrap my brain around the type of conversation because when you sell a product, it's the product. It is what it is. You talk about features and functions and how it saves time. Most products save time. Right, you, you kind of have the same conversation with different focal points when you're selling a product. But when you're selling a service, there's this element of, okay, but what happens afterwards? And that's been a big focus for us this year so far is like, you know, so we brought on Meg Holsinger, that's the first customer success director that John's ever hired. And the reason we brought them on is because we know that when customers do sales trainings, sales kickoffs, big events for their team, the training is often really impactful and you see a lot of wide open eyes in the, in the, in the crowds, but when, when it's over, it's over and maybe 10, 15, 20% of that training is implemented. So now we have a point person that we can put towards somebody that we've trained and we can say, all right, work with this company to implement these things so that they become part of the process deep in the process instead of just surface level. 20% of your sales team executing on 20% of the training seems like it might be a waste of money. We really want to start focusing on the aftermath of the training. We know our stuff is effective. We know it works. We know that it gets results, but if it falls off six months later, so do those results. So our job now is to focus on the aftermath of training. Yeah, that's what I do. I, I've had that built into my stuff. So it's, it's interesting. I'm, I'm glad to see you guys taking it even a step further, which is really, really smart. Um, yeah because I think it'll, it'll bode well and it'll, it'll help continue to push out the average sales consultants as well. Right. I think it's important because leave. Right. Um, cool. What, what's been your hardest part of transitioning, right. From this direct role, like what is, what is something that you had no idea this was going to be a challenge and you're like, Oh shit. Like now I'm struggling or this is what I do. Yeah. Um, so I have two answers for this one. I know in the, in the, in the stuff, from before there, there was one answer that I had, but I came up with another one that I think is worth saying, changing the perception of outside people. So like my friends and my family and the people that I know, and even people that I network with and have never met before, when people say, what have you been up to lately? Or what are you doing these days? Or tell me about what you do if they're a stranger and it's business and it's networking. Sometimes it's really hard to tell them what you do when you're selling a product because your product has a, a niche that it fits into uh, it has a, 
specific piece of software, CRM, marketing automation, sales enablement, whatever it is. And if, if somebody's not familiar with that space, it can be really challenging to tell them what you do. So you end up really watering it down and saying things like, oh, I'm in sales. <laughs> you could go on and on about what you do, how you do it, your features, your functions, the people you help, your ICP, the personas in there. You can talk all day, but you end up having to be like, what's the easiest thing to say here for this person that's probably not a prospect for me because they're my cousin. I'm in sales, right? <laughs> like, so outside people, it's really tough to educate them on what you do when you're in SaaS. And I think a lot of sales reps would agree with me on that because you pitch all day and you talk all day to people that could potentially buy your product. And then that family member that you haven't seen in two years comes to you and says, what do you do? And the last thing you want to do is bust out that elevator pitch that you get. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. so, so that's the first one. Uh, and then the second one is convincing people that they need help. I think egotistically, we all think that we have this set, man. This is my deal. I've got this. I'm, I'm driving this car. So having to convince somebody that you can help them and that they could use your help, I think is one of the biggest challenges that every salesperson deals with, no matter what they sell, product, service, uh, training, coaching, uh, even individual consultants have a really hard time convincing leaders, thought leaders, department heads, executive level, senior people, they, they just have a hard time admitting that they could use any help at all because if that's a, a hit to their ego. Oh, no, I'm good. I can handle it. That's why we're all set and we're all good are very common responses for everybody. What, um, so what is your, you know, you know, I, I've known John for years, right? He's helped me build my business and mentor me. And, and, you know, I know what he does and I know what Morgan's coming in and doing. Are you just doing more of the same or have you, are you guys carving out a niche for you that James is going to help focus on this with customers versus that? Um, so I'm, so first of all, we want to deliver a universal message as a team. Uh, so my first target is to deliver the filling the funnel prospecting course. Right. That's going to be my first go-to. I want to come out and I want to train the filling the funnel. How do you prospect? What are the best practices? How do you fill that funnel up and keep it moving, right? Uh, I think from there, I want to develop my, keep my driving to close, right? So I want to be delivering that at some point as well. And then I have to learn how to deliver Morgan's keep dialing workshop. You know, I think that the reason John is doing what he's doing is because he realizes that we are all better together. A stronger force out there delivering this message of, hey, you can do better, we can sell better, and we can help you learn how, that's what you're after. Because it can't just always be John. John's great. He's got a huge brand. Everything he's done has really impacted thousands of sales reps all over the globe. But if you're going to do something that's truly impactful, it has to be more than just you. That's the purpose of bringing me on. It was the purpose of bringing uh, Morgan on two years ago. But for me, my long term is that I want to be talking about building a personal brand because we at JB Sales believe that's the future. Everyone eventually will be a personal brand of one, one form or another. You, you have to today. All the tools are lining up so that if you're not a content creator, most people don't want to talk to you. I don't know who you are. I have no reason to reach back out to you. When I look you up, I see nothing, right? That's the nature of building a personal brand, becoming a valued resource and somebody that is worthy of connection and conversation for your prospects. So, I mean, 
did Morgan talk to you at all about the conversation that he and I had about super teams and the concept of what you said sort of were better together? You guys uh, no, that conversation no I only saw that photo and wished I was there. <laughs> <laughs> Ask him. Ask I had, him that, I had that same jealousy moment. Well, the, 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 con the context was, you know, there are X number of people out there who have been doing <clears throat> what they do and doing it well for a particular period of time. And let's say all of these folks have a, you know, half million to a million dollar kind of lifestyle business. But like you just said, is that enough? Not so much in the monetary sense, but is that enough in the, am I making as big an impact as possible sense? And how can, how can we kind of scale that up? And, and, you know, I was like half joking, but I started talking about like the sales guild, right? Where you've got to like earn your way in and you do this Illuminati kind of, kind of thing. And then people are going to start banding together. Right. And, and I, I knew that you were coming over there and it's like, Oh, you got John's brand. You got James's brand. You got Morgan's brand. I'm like, when is the Jay Barrow's competitor going to brand or going to pull a bunch of people together? Right. When is there going to be another super team and a third super team? Yep. John gobble up more people who are out there in the consulting kind of training industry. I'm curious how you see this all playing out because I fully believe like every other industry or product consolidation is going to come. So I don't think so. And here's why we this can agree. Great. James and I basically disagree on. Almost I everything. disagree with you hundred percent for a good reason though. Right. I think that we get something different. We, in the sense of like the overall sales community, we get something different out of every training that we take. If that's true, then that means that our sales training, Jay Barrow's sales training is hyper complementary to most other sales trainings that are out there. And here's why. Perspective is everything. Somebody might go out and they might learn Sandler training and they come back and they implement those tools and those processes and those, those language things that happen in Sandler and they implement that and they see success. The next month, the next year, the next quarter, Jay Barrows comes in and does filling the funnel, which is hyper complementary to Sandler training. But, 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 but you're talking about a completely different point. I'm, I, this, these are two completely different things here, right? So you're talking about Deloitte and McKinsey, for example. These are like the largest consulting firms, you know, in the world maybe, right? And you're talking about Sandler sales. Well, Sandler was like one dude event at the beginning, right? Yeah. Now they have God knows how many certified people. Tony Robbins was one dude at the beginning. Now yep. you have God knows how many certified people. John yeah. Barrows was one dude. Now he has a couple other people who are certified. And you were just talking about how you're going to deliver Morgan's training and then, you know, have your own as well. So I'm just talking about like, okay, isn't more consolidation going to come? What about a couple, what about a couple cats over in, in, in Europe, right? What about Dupree and Disney? What if they band together? What if Richard and I banded, you know, together and merged our businesses and then, Maybe if John's business keeps growing, does he start to gobble Richard and I? Does he gobble Dale and, and Daniel? I just see, foresee it. This is what happens in every category, right? Yeah. That's what happens yeah. in every single software category that there is. Eventually, consolidation happens. And I'm just wondering if these super teams are going to start forming, right? And, and consolidation of the, of the sort of sales experts, of, of the, uh, the sales trainers and consultants might be something that, that we see. And I think that that's different than what you're talking about. 
It might be. I think that they would have to agree on fundamentals in order for that to happen. If there's a roll up in the sales training community, that means that we all agree to some level about practices. And I, I can I, tell I you, I think we're pretty close there. You, you, yeah, if you go on LinkedIn, if you go I mean, on LinkedIn, spend five minutes on LinkedIn, you hear people say, "Oh, all these sales experts, they all talk about the same thing." It's like, well, yeah, they're kind of talking about the same thing because guess what? That's what fucking works. <laughs> it should be no surprise when everybody tells you one plus one equals two because shit, that's fact. That's the truth. I, I think that there's too many variables at the fundamental level. And I'll give you a good example. We believe that relationships actually matter in the sales process. But there are other sales trainers out there that openly say it doesn't matter. Well, I can tell you from experience that when you want the referral or the renewal, the relationship is the only thing that matters. So that's a fundamental that lots of sales trainers disagree on. Lots of them don't. And I feel that those have a chance of collaborating. But the ones that don't think that's true, For sure. they're going to collaborate with others that believe themselves. So while I think that it's unlikely it will become one empire of sales training organizations, I believe that there will be pods. And I think that's what we're starting to see right now. And you know what? You couldn't ask for a better scenario because pers different perspective opens up minds to different processes, different approaches, different takes. It's, it all matters. It's not about one specific thing. It's about all the different things and what works for you and the personality that you currently sell to. And I've said this before, everybody has an ideal personality that they gravitate towards. Somebody that you've met for the first time ever, and we can agree that we've had people like this in our lives. You shake their hand for the first time and you go, man, I really fucking like that dude. You don't know why, they just rub you the right way. You're like, that guy is awesome. And then, and conversely, we've all met people where we've shook their hand and been like, if I never see that person again, I'm totally fine with it. I, if I never talk to that person again, I'm absolutely cool with it. This is the basis of sales today. Just because somebody delivers content in a dry, monotone way doesn't mean the people that consume content like that aren't going to gravitate towards them and be like, I love your content. I really want to connect. Let's have a conversation. Yeah. Still, go ahead, Richard. Yeah, no, I, I, I think it's interesting. I think that we are seeing this consolidation happen. I know, you know, um, it, it's very interesting. And of course, I'm very angry at John for never buying me, but that's okay. That's a, <laughs> taking as many digs at John as I can on this podcast. I um, can tell. <laughs> he'll do it back. It's no big deal. It's all right. Okay. Um, but uh, we'll shift this because we, we sort of turn this around at the end of every podcast. We've got a couple more minutes left. Um, how can we help you? How can we turn this around and sort of, you know, you've been very gracious with your time, which we appreciate, giving a lot of knowledge, sharing a lot of wisdom, but we also want to give back to you. How do we, how can we do that for you? Yeah, so I'm new to the Jay Barrows uh, family. So what I'd like to do is talk to people that would love to do a run with me on filling the funnel or even just see what filling the funnel looks like with the online portal that we offer. Yep. If that's something that you guys think you've got enough connections or your listeners out there think that, hey, you know, I could really use a different perspective this year, you know, and you've done Richard, you've done Scott, you've talked to other, like, let's do something different. Let's talk about it at a bigger level and see if we can find something that you've never heard before. If we can do that and you can implement it, you might see different results as a result. 
You know, I, I totally agree. And I think since you're trying to steal my customers and Scott's, I'll do the same thing. If you've had John's training <laughs> and you've had Martin show up, right. call Richard. Like, like, let's be fair, right? Like, um, you know, I, we were thinking a little bit more, you know, what does James need help with? No, not, not, uh, which again, look, it's all good, right? We all love each other. Um, yeah. But that's good. Like, I, w I certainly want you to be successful. And I do encourage people that if you don't know James to follow him or if you haven't done uh, Jay Barrow's um, filling the funnel or sales training, it's excellent. Um, it, I mean, it's what got me into sales consulting. Like, I never knew I'd be a consultant until I met John. Um, awesome. It is excellent, excellent training. So um, anything else you want to share with folks, James? Uh, yes, I love cold calls. So I want your cold call. I give my number out on every podcast I do. It's 305-632-6005. If you're going to cold call me, you better know who I am. If you cold call me and you've not done research, I will call you out on it. Well, they should at least know that you were on the podcast. Like that's about as easy as it gets. Give that number out one more time though. Slow yeah, up. Absolutely. It's a Miami phone number. I'll never give it up. It's 305-632-6005. Or you can email me, james at jbarrows.com. Awesome, man. James, thanks so much for coming on. We really enjoy it. Appreciate all the perspectives. And, um, you know, let us know if you're ever going to get another ferret. That was hilarious. <laughs> that was pretty good. That was pretty thanks, good. guys. I appreciate the, the invite. This has been a lot of fun. Let's do it again soon. Has anybody told you yet, James, that you look like Richard's younger brother? I, I actually am Richard's younger brother. I changed my name. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. At least he has hair. He's the good brother with hair. So. I'm like younger. All right, everybody. We'll catch you later. Yeah.